Well, my name is Nate, and if we don't know each other, I'd love to meet you at some point. Um, Acts chapter 2 is where we'll be today, if you have a Bible um, and want to follow along. Acts chapter 2, this is um, on page 967 in the Bible that's provided there, if you would like to open to that. In today's text, we encounter the very first group of people who became Christians, the very first group of people who heard the gospel message and believed and were then baptized. And so as we just celebrated baptism today, we are gonna look at the first Christians to get baptized into the church. And this is amazing to me because the same message that led to people becoming Christians and getting baptized The same message was proclaimed then as now. I think about, as I was preparing for this text, I think about the story of my grandfather that he told me about how he came to Christ. He was a young man. He was self-described as an agnostic. He was on his way to basic training. He was on a train ready to prepare for the Korean War, and sitting on the train across from him uh, were these two twin brothers, and um, they shared the gospel with him, and he debated them for, you know, six to eight hours on this train, and they left the conversation, and he thought they were idiots, and he told them so, and then what they shared stuck with him and he became a Christian. The message that they told him is the same message that caused me to become a Christian at the age of five, sitting in a church service, and a preacher was sharing, and something happened inside of me. I was pierced to the heart, and I became a Christian. And that has been happening ever since Acts chapter 2. The result of this message that is spoken is, we just heard, verse 37. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. Today, I just want to talk about why were they pierced? Why were they pierced to the heart? And what we're going to see is that they were pierced to the heart because they heard news that humbled them and revived them. The reason they were pierced is because they heard news that humbled them and revived them. So let's talk about it. First of all, they heard news. Peter stands up and preaches the first ever Christian sermon. What's just happened is, we talked about last week, the flames of fire have come down. The 120 have started speaking in different languages. There's a huge crowd that gathers. They're confused. How are they speaking in these different languages? What does this mean is the question they ask. And Peter stands up to answer that question. What would you expect him to say? He's going to stand up. It's the first ever Christian sermon. He's 
going to set the record straight. This is the message of this new so-called religion. This is the message. What would you expect him to say? It reminds me of when a new football coach gets hired or a new president is announced for some kind of company. There's a new CEO, a new boss. And in their first meeting, they're going to clarify the expectations. Here's what we're going to be doing. We're going to play defense. We're going to run this scheme. We're going to, here's the vision. What would you expect Peter to say at the very first Christian sermon? What he does is he stands up and he announces news. We're going to skip over the very first thing he says, and it'll make sense why in a minute. And we're going to look at verse 22. Look. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to these words. And then he explains the life of Jesus briefly. He says, this Jesus of Nazareth, which Jesus? We haven't even met Jesus. He's talking to people who are from out of town. What do you mean this Jesus? He'll explain. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. This Jesus that you've heard about, he was doing all kinds of miraculous things, but all of those signs and wonders were meant to attest to something. They were meant to tell you something about Jesus. Okay, so he describes his life. Then he describes his death, verse 23. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. This was all part of God's plan, but you were responsible for carrying it out. You have killed Jesus. Again, they're going, wait a minute. I'm from Egypt. I didn't kill Jesus. What do you mean? I'm responsible. Keeps going. Then he describes his resurrection, verse 24. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Then he quotes at length from Psalm 16. We'll look at that in a minute. Then after saying, this Jesus that was killed and you're responsible for, he was raised from the dead. Death could not hold him. He's more powerful than death. And then... He describes his ascension, verse 32. God has raised, here's our little phrase again, this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. And that is true. You can read about it in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God, this is verse 33, and he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. Now, notice this verse. Remember why Peter started talking in the first place? Their question was, what does this mean? Meaning, what's the deal with all of these people speaking in these languages that we can understand? How are they able to do that? Peter answers their question here in verse 33. The reason that they're able to do that is because Jesus lived, died, was raised from the dead and ascended to the Father and he has poured out the Holy Spirit 
and it's the Holy Spirit that is enabling them to speak. Here's his answer to the question. So when he stands up to speak, he immediately begins to announce events in Jesus's life, news about Jesus. And then he concludes it all in verse 36. He says, therefore, here's the point. Let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, the one who lived, the one who died, the one who was raised, the one who ascended, the one who has poured out the spirit. God has made this Jesus, the Jesus of history, the Jesus who lived. He has made this Jesus whom you, here he, uh, he accuses them again, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Here's the point. Peter stands up to give the first ever sermon and he begins to announce news. Something has happened. Something has happened in history. There are events that have taken place. And what has happened, the events that matter are about Jesus of Nazareth. When Peter preached the first sermon, he did not stand up and recite Jesus's teaching. He announced news. Do you understand the significance of that? He could have stood up. It's his first chance to teach a Christian sermon. And he could have said, well, let me tell you some of the things that Jesus taught. He said to love your neighbor. He said to be generous. He said to bless those who persecute you. He doesn't start reciting the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't start reciting the Olivet Discourse. Jesus taught a lot of beautiful, amazing things. But when Peter stands up to preach the first sermon, he does not talk about Jesus's teaching. Instead, he announces news. Jesus did something. The gospel is first and foremost good news. The thing that makes Christianity Christianity is good news, not good advice. Christianity is primarily about historical events, not moral teachings. Notice in Peter's sermon, there are zero moral instructions. Do you see that? If you read through everything Peter says, zero moral instructions. He does use three imperatives. Verse 14, he says, pay attention. Verse 22, he says, listen. In verse 36, he says, no, or understand. Do you see the significance of that? These people are going to become Christians as a result of his teaching. And he didn't teach any morals. What does that mean about Christianity? It's not primarily techniques for your life. It's not primarily laws for you to follow. It's not primarily moral teachings. It's primarily news. Something happened. 
Jesus did something. And this has huge implications for how we understand the heart of Christianity, the heart of the gospel. First, it helps us understand the Bible better. And second, it helps us understand salvation, what we believe about salvation. So let's talk about the Bible for a minute. Peter understood that the Bible is ultimately about Jesus and what Jesus has done. This event happens, the Holy Spirit comes down, the people start to speak in different languages. And then Peter stands up and he interprets the events in light of Joel chapter two, verse 16. Verse 15, he says, these people are not drunk as some of you suppose, since it's only 9 a.m. But on the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And then he says, and it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. He understands that Jesus is the one who ushers in the last days. Do you see that verse 17? And it will be in the last days. He understands that the focal point of history is Jesus. The focal point of God's revelation in the Bible is Jesus. Because he's going to interpret this whole event as we already looked at in verse 33. Jesus is the one who poured out the spirit. The reason the last days are here is because Jesus has lived, died, resurrected, and ascended. So he's interpreting this Joel text as being ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. He says, it will be in the last days that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. He's saying, all people are going to be able to receive the Holy Spirit based on what? Jesus and the fact that he lived, he died, he was raised from the dead and he ascended to the Father. Based on something Jesus did, you can receive the Holy Spirit. That's what he'll say in verse 38. Then he says, this can't be about Jesus, right? I will display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. What is that about? Well, then he says, Jesus was attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. It's about Jesus. And then what's the whole deal with the darkness and the moon turning into blood? Well, it could be a reference to the crazy stuff that started happening when Jesus died on the cross and it was just, it was noon and then it became dark for three hours. Could be referring to that. That would count as kind of crazy, weird manifestation. What about the whole moon to blood thing? I don't know. I think it's, probably metaphorical. I think it's about the fact that crazy stuff is going to be happening because of Jesus. The whole world will be changed because of Jesus. That's, I think, the point. Either way, P. 
Peter believes that something about Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension is what's fulfilling it. That's the point that I'm trying to make. He believed Joel chapter 2 was about Jesus. He believed Psalm chapter 16 was about Jesus. Verse 24, he says, God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. And then he says this, verse 25, for David, the author of Psalm 16, the king of Israel from a thousand years before this, for David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. If you go read Psalm 16, it says it's by David. That's gotta be about David. He's just praying to God. What is Peter doing? He's mishandling the scriptures here by trying to make this about Jesus. This is about David. He's praying and he's just saying, God, would you please help me? I need you to, you know, take care of me. Don't let me go down to Hades, the place of the dead and hold my right hand and make sure you sustain me and give me joy today as I go throughout my day. That's all that's happening. That's not all that's happening, Peter says. How do we know? Uh, Because David is dead. If that's what David was hoping in, God didn't do it for him. He was wasting his life. If he was trusting that God wouldn't let him go down and die, God abandoned him. Because how do we know that? He's talking to people in Jerusalem. He's like, we can still go to David's grave. Everybody believes David's in there. So how is Psalm 16, David saying, Lord, don't let me go to Hades. We've got his grave with us. Peter's going, it's not about David. David is looking forward to another. David is speaking about Jesus. And because it's about Jesus, it's true. And because it's about Jesus, David, even though he's dead and in the grave, actually has hope for a future resurrection because what God did for Jesus, he will do for all who belong to Jesus by faith. That's what he stands up to announce. And then he does it again with the ascension. He says, therefore God highly exalted him. He's the right hand of God. Verse 34, then he quotes from Psalm 110. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Saying Psalm 110, it's about Jesus. What is Peter trying to teach us? What was Peter announcing? He's saying this new thing that in just a minute, you're going to be pierced to the heart and convert to following Jesus as Lord and Messiah. This new thing is about Jesus. It's news about him. And so our sacred text, the Old Testament scriptures, he would say to his fellow Jews, our sacred texts are not meant to be read as instructions for how to climb our way to God. They're meant to be read as a map that leads to Jesus. In the Old Testament, we read about Adam who failed to do God's will in the garden. 
and brought death to all of us. Jesus, to quote Tim Keller, is the true and better Adam who prayed all night and prevailed in obedience in the garden in order to bring life to all of us. The story of David and Goliath. David is the overlooked, rejected son from the tribe of Judah who goes out on behalf of the whole nation to slay their enemy. Jesus is the true and better David who was overlooked and rejected from the tribe of Judah and goes out to fight on behalf of his people and slay their greatest enemy, sin and death. In the Old Testament, there was the Passover lamb. It provides its blood provided shelter for God's people so that the angel of death might pass over them. Jesus is the true Passover lamb whose shed blood takes away the sin of the world so that God's wrath might pass over us. God established the priesthood in the Old Testament. The priest would go in and out of God's presence with the blood of bulls and goats on behalf of the people in order to intercede for them. But Jesus is the great high priest who entered not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by his own blood once for all time. And he lives to intercede for us. God commanded in the Old Testament, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall love me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus is obedient to God to the point of death, even death on a cross. God said in the Old Testament law, you shall not steal. Jesus not only takes nothing, but gives everything. God said, you shall not lie. No deceit was found in Jesus' mouth, and he said nothing but what he heard from the Father, and he himself is the truth. The Bible is about Jesus. The Bible is full of wisdom and instruction about how to live. It's full of characters and stories for us to learn from. In this regard, it's similar to many other religious texts, but what makes the Bible unique primarily is not its rules or its stories. What primarily makes the Bible unique is its savior. That's what makes it unique. The Bible's primary point is this, that everyone fails to obey God. Everyone fails to keep the rules. Everyone except Jesus. And he, the one who is faithful to God, has not come to condemn you, but to be condemned for you so that you might be saved. That is the point of the Bible. And this is why Peter announces news, not advice. Historical events, not moral instruction. Jesus is what the Bible has always been about. And this also shapes how we understand salvation. When Peter announces his message of salvation, verse 21, he says, Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When he announces his message of how to be saved, his message of salvation, he announces events in Jesus's life. Think about that. The only commands are listen, understand, then eventually repent. How is that possible? See, if you were going to announce how to be saved, how to fix your life out of the messed up predicament that you're in. There's gotta be at least a command, right? 
amoral instruction. Like, but Peter announces stuff about Jesus. Why? Why doesn't he announce morals? Because the people God saves are not good people. They're not moral people. They're not trustworthy people. They're not tolerant, good for society people. God does not save people who live up to some worthy, acceptable standard. If God's message of salvation was about keeping laws, Peter would have announced some laws. If God was only gonna save the good people, then give them the instructions so they can be good. But God saves sinners. And sinners need a savior, not more laws. And so Peter stands up and announces about Jesus. Two verses in the New Testament that help capture this idea so clearly are Romans chapter three, verse 23 and 24. The apostle Paul, who will eventually himself be pierced to the heart by this message, writes this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Do you know what sin is? John Stott says the essence of sin is that we take God's place. We take his place. We pursue our desires, not God's. We trust ourselves, not God. We believe we know better than God. And this is an arrogant, disrespectful, foolish thing that creatures would look at the creator and say, we know better than you. And yet that is what sin is. That's the essence of sin. It's taking God's place. It's thinking that something besides God can make my life matter and be significant. Something besides God can make me be secure. Something besides God can justify my existence. That's the essence of sin. And God is infinitely good, holy, and just. His right response to sinners like us is anger and action. God's justice demands payment for sin. If God doesn't hold sinners accountable, he's not good. He's not just. He's not God. But God is not only infinitely good, holy, and just, but also merciful, full of grace and love. And he's not sometimes choosing to have justice and sometimes choosing to have grace and love. He's all of these things at all times. So how can a good, holy, just God ever have a relationship with immoral dysfunctional sinners. The essence of sin is that we take God's place. The essence of salvation is that God takes ours. The way that God can have a relationship with us while he's demanding payment for sin is he also makes the payment 
for us. At the cross, a permanent payment for sin was made. And that's why Romans 3.24 goes on to say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the verse everybody memorizes in Awana or somewhere. But verse 24 is where the real power is. They, who? Sinners. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? To be justified means to officially be declared as good, righteous, not guilty. It's being officially accepted, not rejected, officially affirmed, not condemned. And we are justified freely, Paul says, by his grace. That is, God is giving us justification as a gift. He's giving us salvation as a gift. God does not save people who deserve it. He saves people who do not deserve it. That's the whole point. And this is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The word redemption means paying the debt we owe in order to bring us to freedom. It's doing something great to make up for something terrible. Jesus has paid our debt through his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Jesus has taken our place so that we can have credit for what he has done. Theologians call this an alien righteousness. What does that mean? It means the righteousness, the morality, the credit for doing good, being a good person, all of that comes to us not from within us somehow, but it comes to us from outside of us. It's alien to us. It's foreign to us. The righteousness that we need comes from outside of us in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is why when Peter stands up to announce everybody ought to be saved, everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He does not say moral commands. What does he do? He talks about Jesus. Why? Because it's only through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus that sinners can be saved. And this is the defining distinction between the Christian gospel and all other religions. This is the defining distinction between the Christian gospel and all other religions. All other religions, including secularism, are offering swimming lessons to drowning men. The gospel offers a rescue plan. The gospel says, no one swims to heaven. Everyone gets carried there. Our symbol is not a ladder. Here are the steps for you to climb your way to God. That's not our symbol. What's our symbol? Our symbol is a cross. This is the way to God. Something happened for you. The primary message of Christianity is not 
you've got to do something for God. The primary message of Christianity is that God has done something for you in his son, Jesus. And so the command is, hear it. Hear the news. Do you see why it's news and not moral instruction that cuts to their heart? The news is something has happened for you. Hear it. Pay attention to it. Know it. And this news does pierce their heart. And the reason it pierces their heart is first because it humbles them. It humbles them. It pierces them. It makes them feel so deflated initially. Why? Well, think about it. Verse 36, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, Verse 23, he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. You used the lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. What do you mean? We didn't do that. Yeah, you did, Peter says. Yeah, you did. Think about who these people are that he's saying this to. Verse five, it says, now there were Jews in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. These are moral people. These are religious people. These are people who believe their Bible. We didn't crucify this guy. Peter says, yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. What do you mean that we are responsible for his death? What do you mean that we need salvation from Jesus? Here's why this would be a confusing message to devout religious people, because here's how the world typically works. You're accepted or rejected based on how you were born or how you behave. That's how the world typically works. You're accepted or rejected based on either how you were born or how you behave. If you're born in a good country, if you're born in a family that's well-connected, or depending on your birth order in the family, or depending on the genes that you inherited, or your ethnicity, or your gender, or wealth, these things, how you were born, in many ways, determine the access that you have. And how we behave the kinds of things that we do, how well we perform, determine whether or not we're going to be accepted or rejected. If you want to get into college, have good grades, a good resume, good recommendations. If you want to impress the coach, work hard, perform well, show up early, leave late. If you want to get a job, build your career, have positive performance reviews, do something worthwhile, do something that matters. If you want the girl to like you, be funny, be attractive, tell the truth, behave. 
This is how the world works. The gospel says, you are not fine the way that you are. The gospel says it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, or what you've done. We're really close to a Backstreet Boys lyric right there. (laughs) (laughs) The gospel says you are not fine the way that you are. Do you see why this is so humbling? The gospel says, the way that you are, you are unacceptable before God. Do you hear that? The way you are, you are unacceptable before God. And this is hard for religious people. This might be hard for some of you to hear and you've been in church your whole life. You are unacceptable before God. It doesn't matter that you've been here your whole life. It doesn't matter that you have Bible verses memorized. That does not make you acceptable to God. It's hard for devout people because look at the moral aptitude that I have and the moral record I've performed. Look at the service and the sacrifice The gospel says you are unacceptable to God the way you are. And this is also hard for free spirits. You're independent. You get to define truth for yourself. No one has the right. No one has the right to accept or reject you based on their own criteria you get to define the criteria. And the gospel says, you're you're unacceptable. Do you see why this is a piercing message? If you hear it and you understand it, you are not fine the way that you are. Becoming a Christian is being pierced to the heart by this fact. Jesus had to die for me. It was my sin that held him there. It was my sin that held him there. I crucified him. The only way for me to be saved is for Jesus to die. That's humbling. But simultaneously, this news about Jesus revived them. They were pierced to the heart because they were humbled by this news, but they were also pierced to the heart because they were revived, rejuvenated, emboldened by this news. It was my sin that held him there. On the one hand, that's humbling. I'm responsible for this. He's suffering for me. What a wretch I am. But wait. It was my sin that held him there. It was my sin that held him there. I'm not hanging there. He is. That's the gospel. 
The gospel is, why should I carry around guilt? He's hanging there. The gospel is, why should I be beating myself up for my failures? He's hanging there. The gospel is, why should I keep searching for something to justify my existence? He's hanging there. The gospel is, why should I let sin dominate me? He's hanging there. That's the gospel. It pierces our hearts because it's news. It's not about us. It's not advice. It's not instructions. It's news. Do you hear it? And have you been pierced by it? The way we're going to end today is a little bit different. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to this message. If you are here today and you are hearing the gospel message, the message that Jesus has died for you. He had to, and he was glad to. If you are hearing this message and you feel something in your heart being pierced, then as soon as I finish praying, I want to invite you, as the service ends, for you to come forward. There's going to be some people who can talk with you about what to do. After I pray, That's going to be the end of the service. There's no music. You're free to go. But if your heart has been pierced, then come forward and respond to this message. Let me pray for us. Father, we do praise you for sending your son We do praise you that salvation is in his name and no one else. It's not in ours. God, I ask that your spirit would be active now. God, would your spirit convict concerning sin today? Would your spirit open eyes to see Jesus? Would you cause faith to spring up in this room? Would we be a community that is revived by this truth? It's in Jesus' name that I ask. Amen.